Great. All right. Go ahead and take your seats. Uh, for those who have joined us for the very first time, we are so happy that you're here. Um, and I just want to say get ready. If you join us for the first time, uh, this is just a glimpse of what God's about to do in your life. Uh, my name is Herman. I'm one of the worship pastors for this house. Uh, we have amazing calling to reach the nations. I believe that we're going to write songs that all of Asia is going to be singing. Uh, I believe that God has given us a forerunner anointing to set the captives free, uh, to not just allow this dancing and partying just in our own four walls, but we're going to see it in the city of Busan. Amen. We're going to see it not just in Seoul or Tegel. We're going to see it all across North Korea. We're going to see it go through China. We're going to celebrate with the Chinese brothers and sisters. And then we're going to go over to Turkey, Iran, all the way back to Jerusalem. Amen. How many guys believe revival's on its way? And we get to partake. Amen. Uh, today, I want to share a special message. Uh, to be honest, this is probably one of the most difficult messages that I've tried to put together in my life. And I haven't preached that many times, but uh, man, it was tough. I spent uh, many days uh, in travail. <laughs> uh, literally on one point, I spent like six, seven hours. And I'd be staring at the computer screen saying, Lord, Lord, <laughs> come on, come on. Um, so I hope that more than what I say, that the Lord will unravel the unsaid. I think there's something that God wants to release to you individually as well as corporately. Uh, so if you're going to have your Bibles ready, I'm going to have various texts, uh, but also I prepared a little handout for you so that you could also not only visually see the word, uh, but to follow along. So if I do lose you, uh, you know where I'm at. Okay. All right. The first text uh, to begin today is a uh, text that comes from Proverbs. Uh, this year is a year of wisdom for New Philadelphia Church. Uh, we're really focusing and honing on to the wisdom of God to build this house well. Uh, we want to steward everything well. Uh, and especially this season and this few weeks, Pastor Christian, who is our lead pastor, is focusing on the wisdom in relationships. So today I'm going to talk about relationships. Proverbs 27.10. Let's go there. And if you got it, say got it. Got it. All right. And I'm going to get the ladies of the house to read this in one clear, loud voice. One, two, three. Begin. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Amen. Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So I want to ask you the question today. I know some of you guys are here for the very first time. Uh, and I'll ask you a few questions to make you think. Uh, what were some of the reasons and how did you come about to coming to this church? Whether it's New Philadelphia as a whole or any church. Think of the first time that you stepped into a church. How did that come to be? Okay. Think about it. Nextly. Think of the time that you first accepted Jesus Christ in your life and the last time you led someone to Christ. You think about that time, picture it. And finally, think about a time that you experienced that made a major breakthrough, whether it's healing and deliverance or a specific prayer answered. And what I want to ask you today, in those three areas that I asked you, 
What was the main common denominator aside from the presence of God? Yes, as you, as you noticed from the title, the main common factor that enabled us to get to the, the point of meeting God, the answer was relationship. It was and is relationship. Relationship is God's main source, main vehicle for His kingdom. So the kingdom advances indeed through relationships. Uh, this is something that PC uh, drives home throughout our ministry. It's, it's a ministry uh, value that we uh, stand by. We don't believe our church should be functional where we are called to um, a job. It's not something that I do as a part-time thing. It's a lifelong, lifelong race. Amen? Amen? And we do it through relationships. Rick Warren summarizes the importance of relationships by sharing, quote, four of ten commandments deal with our relationships to God, while the other six deal with our relationship with people. But all ten are about relationships. Think about it. Every single commandment in the Bible they're all related to relationships, whether it's God or people. And here is the key revelation I want to, for us to get today, and I hope for you to catch, and is that God desires for you to be blessed in your relationships. That is His heart. Any good father wants their children to be blessed. They want them to be surrounded with the right people, but also for them to be a blessing to the people around them. He says to you right now in Jesus' name, there is nothing you lack in relationships. He has called you to a place and even if there's times of struggle and even loneliness for those who came as a church plant team to Puzan, He will provide. He is your provider. He says, I will provide the leadership to help you steward your faith. He's saying to you right now, I will provide the relationships for you to advance the kingdom. I will provide the relationships in your midst to grow in maturity, to experience spiritual breakthrough, and even experience true Lasting friendship. God is not mucking around when it comes to relationships. He has in mind, I want to bless you. So right now in the midst of the people that you're sitting with, I know that it's not too many. But God is saying, I've given you enough. But a lot of times we're looking at our lack. But God's saying, I have given you enough. Relationally. So I want to give us a fresh reminder. You are exactly where you need to be. Seaside, you're exactly where you need to be relationally. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you don't feel like you're connected with people in the church, God is saying you are meant to be here. If God has called you to here, Seaside, New Philadelphia Church, this is exactly where you need to be. And so through this text, what I felt the Lord was saying was stop looking back. Stop looking back on the past relationships which could have been an old way of relating to people. He's saying stop relying on those distant relationships, even family and friends in your hometown, but see that God has provided you abundantly in the place where you are today. He wants us to do relationships differently. He's saying there is a new wine for the new wineskin relationally. He's inviting you to see the people around you, not just in the flesh, but in the spirit. You see, in the past, we used to do relationships like this. Uh, we have the same interests. Uh, I can see that I can kind of hang out with him. He likes MBA. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> it was pick and choose based on our own agenda. It was our flesh that determined. But what God is saying to you today, people of faith, begin to relate to me and relate to your people, uh, my people, according to my word, my heart, and most of all, by faith. Relationships 
should and shall be done by faith. It's different. It's different. God will encounter you differently if you do relationships by faith. So I remember a time when Pastor John and Pastor Anita, they were single, ready to mingle. And um, so this is before anything was happening. And uh, uh, Pastor John and I were at seminary together at Torch, uh, Trinity Torch. He was in his final year and I was in my second year. Um, and we were having lunch together. And at the end, I asked him just casually. I just popped up and said, oh, you know, is there anyone that you know, you're interested in? Is there any um, girls that you've been praying about, especially as a minister? And um, so he was kind of like, you know, saying, oh, you know, there's some things and kind of being very vague about it. And I said, you know, get to the, get to the chase, get to the point. <laughs> and he was sharing with me how he was going through a season where he was praying about a certain girl. And her name was Anita. And uh, the story goes, uh, he would be in a place where he, he would attempt a date and he would it, it send out all these signals. And Pastor Anita, he would, she would reject him time and time again. And uh, Pastor Marcus would share, uh, he would come home, and it's like pitch black in the house. And Pastor John is sitting on the sofa by himself, just meditating upon the rejection that he received that day. And anyway, so long story short, um, so Pastor John was in that place of contending and praying and waiting. On the other hand, uh, Pastor Anita was obviously considering and kind of thinking what's you know, how to go about this, and a lot of the leaders, PC and P, they're trying to encourage her, um, you know, let, you know, give it a chance, like the seminars that we've been re- receiving as leaders, give it a chance, open your eyes, there could be something there, and uh, I remember a time where we had a ministry time where we all came together and we prayed, and around that time, as we were praying, um, uh, it was really weird, not that I was trying to manipulate the situation, but uh, Pastor I was praying over Pastor Anita, and uh, the Lord kept dropping on my heart, just uh, speak words of faith over her, speak words of faith. So I was praying, and um, suddenly I felt this urge to say, Pastor Anita, you need, to, you need to do your relationships by faith, by faith and by faith. And something stirred within her. Um, I don't know if she re- she'll remember this, but something I think stirred within her uh, to really recognize that relationships need to be done by faith. Uh, as you know or don't know the story, uh, there was a lot of uh, opposition to their marriage, a lot of opposition from any Pastor Anita's uh, mother, and to the point where she didn't attend the marriage at all. And it was to the point where she would not bless the marriage. And uh, what happened was Pastor John remained and uh, in the place of peace, and Pastor Anita both uh, said, you know what, let's do this by faith. And as you know, they are happily married. They went through marriage. They went through the process and submission to the leadership. And now they have a beautiful child. But why do I tell this story? Um, not to say that I prayed and you know, I got to partake. But there's something about faith that makes relationships different. There's something about faith that goes beyond just the physical attraction. And as a people of God, even in the most menial relationships... Faith illuminates and God blesses. And even when it seems an impossible relationship, whether it may be a male and female relationship, faith makes a way, just like in Pastor John and Pastor Anita's situation. Even now, uh, their mother hasn't still blessed their relationship, but in faith, they believe God will use it to bring restoration and also a revival to Pastor Anita's family. So that is 
the faith factor. It doesn't also bless the relationship in itself. It blesses the sphere of other relationships as well. Because God is doing something bigger than the relationship you're contending for. Amen? So the Word of God says, Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. In other words, God has provided. In the midst right now, in your midst, He's saying, I am more than enough. Even more than family, I am representing my heart to the people around you. He says, New Philly, stop relying on relationships. And how you did relationships in the past is a crutch. I want to bring a spiritual breakthrough right now. There's a spiritual order he's bringing to your life today. So look to him right now. In another part of uh, Proverbs, it says that there is a friend who is closer than a brother. What if there's a person next to you that God has ordained? What if that person is meant to be a lifelong friend and you're not giving it a chance? Because of your biases, because of different opinions, because you think they're awkward? What if that person next to you could even potentially be a spouse? And this is not just for Seaside, but whoever's listening. What if someone in your midst is a friend that is meant to be a closer than a brother? And even for those who are joining us here for the first time, what if this community is meant to be a community for you that is closer than a brother? God is saying, give it a chance. I am Jesus through them to you and vice versa. Chances are right now, the network of friends and community holds the key right now to your maturity, your breakthrough and destiny. And more importantly, you hold theirs. You withholding your relationship to the people around you, there is only one thing that I can say. Selfishness. Oh, I'm not compatible with these people. They're a little bit too charismatic for me. Oh, she sings too loud. She's mad awkward. Why does he say hello to me like that? You see, God has ordained and planned even the most awkward people to be your friend. What if you're that awkward person? (laughs) A friend might be someone who's way younger than you, way older than you. What if God is breaking through cultural barriers right now, even gender barriers? Maybe you've had years and years of inner turmoil, emotional scars, where you've been hurt by the opposite gender. But God wants to restore that by giving you proper, ordained gender relationships. I know that in this house, we've had people who have dealt with homosexuality. I know there's people who have been hurt by uh, relationships, including myself. But man, the house of God is a place where he redeems that. Amen? Yeah. Even for my wife, like God used my wife. I was still dealing with a lot of inner healing things, but God used my wife to bring a lot of healing. And that's the same for you, and not just, uh, just male and female relationships. The men in your life, the men in this church, God is using them to establish order of what it means to, what it means to be as men. Amen? Amen? So don't get me wrong. The Bible text isn't throwing out relationships to our family. It's not throwing away our friendships, our best friends uh, who are in the distance. But consider, better is the neighbor who is near here in Pusan. Consider your Pusan friends, he's saying, than a brother who is far away, like Saul, 
Canada, USA, South America, wherever it is. God is saying, look here. Open your eyes. Who is in your midst? Because there is a chance, there is a chance that you are a gift and they are a gift to you. So let me ask you some reflective questions I'm going to get you to write down right now. Okay, I want you to meditate this before the Lord and seek the unsaid. The first question I want us to consider, who are the neighbors around you now? Who is the neighbor near you? And this is not necessarily a church question. It's not just the people in this church. It might be your neighbors in your actual neighborhood. It might be your work colleagues. It might be that Ajashi down the road who offers you better once in a while. And on that same question, have you been stewarding these relationships by faith? Okay, so that's the first question. Second question, in this year of wisdom, with boundaries and also wisdom uh, that's selective, just as Jesus was selective with his 12, I want to ask you and allow myself to ask myself too this question. Who are my Pauls? Secondly, who are my Barnabases? And who are my Timothys? So obviously Paul was like an older brother figure or a mentor, a spiritual father to many. Barnabas was a companion in in the journey of evangelism and ministry, but just simply a friend. And Timothy was like a younger brother in Christ who was being mentored. So who is your Paul's? Who are your Barnabas? Timothy's. Bring it before the Lord and ask. And let wisdom define. God isn't asking you to be the best friends of every single person in this room. He's asking you to be wise with your relationships. He's asking you to stop listening to many voices. Oh, I listen to John Piper. Oh, I listen to, and that's fine. God is inviting you to grow and to learn from these leaders. But who are you truly getting accountability from? Who are you submitting in the name of Jesus, your life to? Whether it's purity, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your future. Is there a voice in your life right now that you're allowing God to be a leadership through? If there isn't, then I want to ask you to consider that biblically, God has ordained and asked you to consider the church as leadership for your life. Third question, how can I invest in and steward these relationships? And I'm going to a little faster, I have a lot more to do. Number four, are there relationships in your midst that you're not opening up to? And you know God is asking you. And one of the things I really love about our campus, and uh, I appreciate every flavor of um, the four other campuses, but one thing especially about our campus, I really appreciate our pastors because they really emphasize relationships. It's not about getting the ministry done through tasks. It's about people. Pastor Mina always says God is a relational God, and therefore we must walk in relationships. And in this hour... How we do relationships will determine everything. 
everything. Everything that is important to God, to Seaside and to you, is anchored on how we do relationships with each other. It matters to God. You see, how we, how we relate to people not only affects and determines how we relate to God, but vice versa, how we relate to God is shown by how we relate to people. Let me say that again. How we relate to God is a reflection of how we relate to people. And how we relate to people is a reflection of how we relate to God. So let me give you a couple more passages to chew on. First John 4.19 says, We love because he loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? A liar. <laughs> For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Bible says if we cannot love or relate to your brother in love, on the contrary in hate, the Bible calls us a liar and therefore we cannot relate to God in love either. Solo Christians don't exist in the kingdom. There is no church hopping in the kingdom of God. If you read the Bible, you notice that there are specific churches, the church of Ephesus, the church of Galatia. And notice how when people of God, when they shifted from church to church, there was, there was a sending out. And when they were sent out, they committed to that church with their life. And in the same way, when we commit to a church, it's not just a church hopping where we decide, pick and choose. But it is a sending out of God's heart to you. So chances are, you being here is God's spirit saying to you, I've sent you to this body to be a blessing. Okay. Now the key true success and fruitfulness in kingdom advancement is of course the word of God. That's second to none. The word of God is so important. The purity of the word of God. But here it is. It cannot move forward unless there is God-pleasing relationships. Without God-fearing relationships... The kingdom of God, the gospel of God, will not go forward. So with the importance of relationships being uh, briefly established, let me, let me give you some basic uh, biblical and practical guidelines at this hour. I want to establish right now that advances the kingdom through relationships. The first point I want to begin, kingdom advances through relationships when? In, in humility, we consider the interests of others too. In humility... We consider the interests of others too. Philippians 2.3. Uh, I'll get the men to read this. One, two, three. The Bible says, do nothing. God says, do nothing from selfishness. Now, through this first point and text, I really felt the Lord wanted to confront a cancer uh, in our relationships. Something that has been growing in different ways for different people in this community and people who are listening to this podcast. For some of us, we've dealt with it very well and we're trying to deal with it before the Lord. Getting treatment through the Word, the church, and the power of the Holy Spirit. While others, it's been hidden. It's been hidden behind layers of excuses insecurity, fears, and even a religious spirit. There have also been times I felt 
when we have both blatantly and covertly used the name of Jesus as an excuse. And what is this cancer I mentioned? It's the cancer and sin of selfishness. According to Miriam Webster, the selfishness, uh, selfishness means, to be selfish means concern excessively or exclu- exclusively one, with oneself. Seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure or well-being without regard for, for others. The second definition that the uh, dictionary gives, selfish means arising from concern with one's own affair or advantage in disregard of others. And uh, how many believe one of the biggest places where selfishness arises is marriage? (laughs) Yeah, there's no other place where selfishness will arise than in a relationship. Why? Because you're, you're, you're bunking with that person. Every day, day in, day out, they see your flaws and weaknesses. And they are forced to not only not run away when they feel like it, or break up this relationship, but they are forced to see not only their weaknesses and mistakes, but they are forced to see their own selfishness. God will, through marriages, even through uh, the friends around you, Allow selfishness to come about. Why? Because he wants to deal with it. He sees relationships as a means to deal with selfishness. Because it's poisoning. Not just your relationships, but it's poisoning your souls. So in terms of selfishness, people who haven't learned to deal continually with their selfishness, and I want to make it clear that it is a heart issue and a sin, have tendencies to view people as a means. It is a means to an end and not an end in itself. People treat people as objects when selfishness is about. People are often seen as springboards for personal gain. Selfishness can also be a mask, can be also well masqueraded in relationships with our workplaces and church, using the name of building the kingdom when a lot of it is about building our own kingdom. Church, we need to be careful not to view people as projects and ministry trophies. Their testimonies aren't ours to glory in. But in humility, a time to celebrate, number one, the miracle of what God has done. And number two, the opportunity to partner with God. And, regard, and re, regardless of who is being used to bring forth the testimony, to be a blessing to that person, we still celebrate. Amen? Amen. Why? At the end of the day, God still receives all the glory. I remember early on when I first became a leader, I really struggled with this. Uh, when I saw someone who I deemed not worthy to be used by God, I saw their flaws and weaknesses. You know, such a bondage on my life that just jealousy and envy would rise. I'm like, God, how could you use that person? What about me? What about my skills and talents? Look at all the things that I've done for you. And I felt this bondage come upon my life. When selfishness comes about, we think about ourselves more than the kingdom. It stops and hinders God using our lives, and God is saying it's enough. The season has come where the pruner will prune things that aren't bearing fruit. Selfishness breeds rivalry, envy, and all types of spiritual diseases, which are all symptoms of the orphan spirit. I'm going to mention this at the very end. It blinds us, both naturally and spiritually. It blinds us to people 
It blinds us to see God's amazing hands and craftsmanship on that person. And even if we do see how God created them in their beauty, strength, skills, talents, anointing, and so forth, selfishness will find a way to manipulate to their gain. How can I use that person to my gain? Let me say it again. Where selfishness isn't tamed, the spirit of manipulation will take root. In your workplaces, in your relationships at work, dealing with people, it will take place. Now let me change the momentum a little bit to get us thinking. How many believe that the right thing tainted with the wrong motive can be absolutely wrong? I remember a time when um, I was listening to a podcast, a message, and he was talking about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And in the podcast, he, the, the preacher gave an example how he was so convicted by his sin against the person that he felt led to uh, contact this person and to ask for forgiveness. And it was powerful. He shared that you know, God really reconciled, reconciled that relationship and blessed that relationship. Anyways, I got so fired up in my spiritual zeal after listening to this. And I thought about all the relationships where I've either caused harm or I've been hurt. And I went through my list. I went through prayer. And I recognized one sister um, early along in my ministry uh, life. And this sister really, uh, vice versa, we really hurt each other through words, through unsaid things, um, through various means. And, you know, at that point, I was convicted. I should email that sister and let her know. And so I emailed her, letting her know, I'm sorry for the things that I did and the words that I said. And, um, you know, I hope that, you know, I, I didn't cause great harm to you and, and so forth. And it was very, very nonchalant. And at the end of it, it was really f- weird. I didn't feel at peace about the email, about the apology. And I was asking the Lord, why, why, why? And uh, some time passed and... Um, I went through a similar situation myself, and uh, this time uh, a, a leader of the church whom had hurt me uh, a long time ago emails me, and this is Saturday night, and uh, he or she emails me and says, you know, I'm really sorry, I felt the Lord convict me, and um, I apologize for all the hurt that I've done. Again, it was very nonchalant, very straightforward, and uh, it was really weird. When I received that email, I didn't feel blessed. It actually caused more damage. And I was asking, why, why do I feel like this? And I began to weigh the email a little bit. And, and I wasn't trying to be judgmental, but I was kind of discerning. Kind of, the reason why this person was emailing me was because he, he felt guilt. He, he or she felt guilt about the situation. So it was almost like he wanted to deal with his sin issue and use me as a means to get rid of this sin issue. Does that make sense? And so, what I recognized from my, from my experience, how I was emailing that sister, my motive was completely off. Even though initially it started off as the right thing, my motive was basically, God, I want to deal with my sin issue. I wasn't thinking about that brother or sister that I emailed at all. And so a lot of the times when we come before God, we might have this right intention at the very beginning, but it's so important to have the right motive. Is this, is this a selfish act or is this a selfless act? What is my motive behind this apology? What is this motive behind the things that I do? 
Because in fact, you could actually uh, cause more damage than the damage already done. So let us consider through this verse, how should we walk through our relationships, in all our relationships, as the Bible says. The Bible says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. The Bible says, do nothing from one's own advantage or gain without regard for others. Or in my own words, stop calculating your relationships. What's in it for me? A lot of times we go into relationships and say, what's in it for me? That's how the world responds to relationships. Uh, The worst scenario is friends with benefit. What's in it for me? How can I be satisfied? Really? That is the manifestation of selfishness, the epitome of it. Friends with benefit. How can this female satisfy my needs? And it's sad. Right now, outside, if you see all the bars, that's what it's all about. How can I be benefited by this relationship? But that's not how the kingdom of God and the people of God should act. Amen? Let us stop polluting our relationships with our hidden agendas. But in humility, as the verse says, count others more significant than yourselves. Do not merely look at your own personal interests. If you have beef with someone... Consider, am I, am I thinking about myself? The Bible says, but also for the interests of others. When you're approaching, approaching that person, humble yourself. How can I consider them above myself? And this is, of course, not about putting ourselves down to lift others. Neither it is to ignore our true significance. But this needs to come from a place where we understand and grasp Our significance we find in God. So when we recognize our significance, it's easy to truly esteem and honor others above ourselves. Why? Because when we know our true value and worth before God as sons and daughters, there is no fear or insecurity. For the Father's perfect love drives out all fear, and the fear to esteem others, to give, is taken away. Those who walk in the orphan spirit constantly walk in insecurity and fear. They try to find worth. They grasp at worth in what they do and in others rather than God. So it's difficult to esteem others. It's hard for them to bless. Really hard to bless to be selfless in giving. Because they fear by giving, they're going to be in lack. If I give this, if I bless them, whether it's financially, with words, Man, I'm going to be in lack. Who's going to bless me financially? Who's going to look after me? The orphan spirit makes them void to bless relationships. You see, the key to all this is not being selfless. The key to this is sonship. And this is a concept that New Philadelphia has been driving home. Sonship is not just about this house. It's not about sonship to a leader where you submit and honor them. Sonship is about your sonship to God, recognizing that He has not only redeemed us from the pit, but He has adopted us. Not only adopted us, but has established us in the place of sons and daughters. That's right. You are mine. So the old is gone, the new has come. It means the flesh, the orphan spirit, has been replaced. By the spirit of sonship. 
So there's this analogy uh, that I once heard. Uh, it's actually a story where uh, this orphan kid, he grew up most of his life, uh, teenage life, in an orphanage, hopping around, um, orphanage to orphanage, and all he knew was the lifestyle of being an orphan. So he would obviously, uh, out of the place of fear, try to protect all his stuff, and uh, whenever he goes to eat, he would always have to try to quickly grab his portion and quickly eat it up in the fear of someone else taking it, um, always feeling insecure in that place. And so one day, uh, this rich, rich man um, comes along and he chooses this boy. He invites uh, the orphanage to pick out someone so that he can adopt. And so he adopts this boy. And the boy is confused. He's like, me? You know, I've been here for many years. Are you sure it's me? And the story goes that the new, newly father shows him the documentation. See, this is, this, is, this is you. This is your name. This is my name. This is your family now. This is to stay your family. And so he takes him home. And as soon as he arrives, he introduces him to, him to his room. So this is your room. This is your closet. These are some of the clothes that I've prepared. And the boy is, is, the boy is so thrilled. He's like, oh my goodness, I've never had my own bed. I've never had my own room or even a computer. This is amazing. The instant that amazement and awe comes over him, fear starts to step in. He's like, oh my goodness, am I going to lose this? And he starts to freak out. And he starts to store things in the cupboard. And he starts to lock it away. And then his father... His newly father begins to call him, hey, come down to dinner. And immediately he begins to think, oh, I really want to eat. I really want to eat. But I'm too afraid to go down. And so the story goes, he, he goes down and the father prepared all this amazing meal. And so he, he grabs and eats it, scoffs it up as fast as he can. But then he kind of noticed, the father noticed him picking out food off the, off the table. And he starts putting it in his pocket. One by one. And then he rushes off to his bedroom. And the father's like, what's, what's that all about? And he goes and follows him to his room. And he, and he comes, and as he was, as he was noticing him going, going about his business, he was kind of helping him clean the room. He noticed that there seemed to be something under his pillow. And he opened his pillow. And all of this food, all of the presents that uh, his father prepared had been stashed. And so this is kind of an analogy and also a picture of how us as Christians, when we first get saved, the Father gives us a documentation. There's a legalistic transition that happens. You are now sons and daughters of God. But what happens is, because of our lifestyle as orphans, we've, we've lived out of fear, we've lived out of lack. When we come into that place of becoming adopt, adopted as sons, it doesn't automatically mean our, our minds have been shifted and changed. It takes time. So for this boy, it took time for him. The father had to speak to him. You know what? Everything that's in this house and in this room, it's yours. You don't have to fear. I I have more prepared for you. So it took time. And bit by bit. And the same thing for us. Even though we've become Christians, there's still a part of us that we fear. That the father will not give. He'll take it away. And there is not only a legal documentation that needs to come. But there needs to be a changing of the mind when we come into the house. The old is gone, the new has come. That's why Paul writes, let go of the old. 
receive the new. Orphans to sonship. And I'm going to unpack this later in my final verse. But Philippians 2, let me read from the uh, message to kind of wrap this part up. And this is from the message. It says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being uh, in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push away to the front. Or don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. What did he do? He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantage of the status no matter what. Not at all. When that time came, he set aside the privilege of deity and took on the status of a slave, became a human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless life, obedient life, and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death, crucifixion. And because of that obedience, God lifted him high, honored him far beyond anyone or anything. Ever so that all created beings in heaven and earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow before him before Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to glorious honor of God the Father. If you want to think of being selfless, let Jesus Christ be the anchor. Do not strive out of your own. But think of Christ who gave all, who laid down his crown so that he can bestow on others the crown of righteousness. The second point I want to bring to you The kingdom advances through relationships when we do good to others, especially believers. Okay, stay with me. And I'm going to read through Galatians 6, chapter 6, verses 1, all the way to verses 10. Um, It's on the piece of paper there, so you don't have to find it in your Bibles. But in in this year of wisdom, I want to ask you, What are some ways that we can do good to others? And one of the ways I want to bring forth to you and exhort you according to the word, according to Galatians 1, is do not let people remain in their sins, but restore them with gentleness. That is a commandment of the Lord. That is part of doing good that God has asked you in relationships. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by spirit... You should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You see, the most loving thing that we can do when we see people walking in sin, harmful behavior, foolishness, is basically confront that spirit first. It's easy to judge, but God is inviting you to confront it through prayer first. Pray first. Seek God's wisdom on how to handle the situation. Secondly, it's a good thing if you confront them. If you have the authority, if you're CG1 and CG2, it's important that you confront. Just as Pastor Lydia today led us through prayer. It's important to confront, yes, but it's important to confront them in gentleness. Establish their dignity 
Establish their true identity, not their old man. It's easy to look at their old man behavior, pattern of sin, but it's even better and even greater when you see and able to discern their new man. Our approach should always be led by the desire for restoration. It is not about uncovering sin, but it's, it's about seeing them being healthy. If you want to do good, it's not ignoring that brother or sister who's living in foolishness. And this is pertaining to the church alone. Uh, it can pertain to the community about you if, if you see. But there's a different order in the church. God is inviting you. Restore them. It begins with prayer. Isn't it interesting in the Bible it says that don't only, not only restore them, uh, that person gently, but to watch yourselves? Because you may be tempted as well. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because in the act of restoring someone, the Bible makes it clear that you yourselves will be tempted as well. Why? Because it's spiritual warfare that you're doing. It's a battle of not just words and of reasoning, but a, a battle against demons and of their heart and mind that has been grappled by chains. So that's why when I invited you to do good and to confront, it's, you need to confront the spirit first. You need to confront the stronghold in their lives. The battle is not against flesh and blood. You need to see not the sin as the person's identity. You need to see the sin as a separate identity in that person. For example, if someone is, is caught in lust, you have to confront that spirit. There's a confrontation in the spirit first. Why is there a temptation? Because you're dealing with that spirit first. Even in your workplaces, when you're dealing with co-workers, even with people, you're dealing with the spiritual atmosphere first. And then the, the soul man. And why, why does the temptation, why is there a temptation? Because you're doing battle on that person's behalf. There are chances, if you're, if you're dealing with the lust in that person's life, there's going to be an attack that's why you need to bind that strong man first and then confront it. It's different. It's different when you come up to a person and try to rebuke them with no prayer and different when you've established and discerned what that is and you've bound that thing and you've declared right now through word and rebuking that that thing needs to leave. Can you hear what I'm saying? And that removes judge, judgment in your discipleship. It removes judgment over people. You see them for who they are in Christ and not the sin. Their identity being established. Sonship being established. Okay, number two. We do good, we do good when we help carry each other's burdens. Verse two says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you shall fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, this could be explained more, but I'm going to let you and God work it out. And I really believe in the next, uh, even today, God's going to reveal to you specific people who are burdened. I feel like uh, today in this room, he's going to reveal specific people who have been struggling emotionally, dealing with some heavy stuff. And he's inviting you right now to carry the, help carry their burdens. And it's important to have wisdom behind this. 
I feel like there's going to be uh, times when in the next week or two, uh, he's going to bring people who are burdened in your workplaces. I feel like he's going to bring people uh, even in your neighborhood where you've kind of witnessed or you kind of discerned this, there's a burden that God wants me to help carry on behalf of that person. And this is the very way that we can fulfill the law of Christ, the, the word of God says. But here's the thing with wisdom. Maybe, as God reveals to a specific person, it doesn't have to mean that you do something directly with them. Maybe he might be asking you for, to pray from a distance, and that's help to carry their burden. Maybe it might be to help them with a menial task, like coming over their house and cleaning their room. Maybe it's just to listen and not to say anything else. But I want to invite you right now, awaken this part of your spiritual discipline and also mandate. God is inviting you to help carry the burdens of others. There are people right now in your midst who need your help in carrying their burdens. Number three, honor your leaders with good things. Verse six says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction, the word should share all good things with the instructor. Uh, instructor. Now, what's this good things talking about? Now, obviously, with wisdom and respect to proper boundaries, honoring your leaders isn't about honoring them with your, with your mouth. It means to bless them, the Bible says, even with material things. Share with them all good things. It might be food. It, in, the study, in the study Bible, it says you can even share food, thoughtful gifts, anything that is reasonable as a means to show your thankfulness and honor. This is the word of God. He's inviting you to share as a means to do good. And I'm not saying this because I'm a leader. Uh, this is the word of God. The word of God says, even a glass of water, I mentioned this a while back in my, one of my sermons, even a glass of water done by faith is done unto him. And it shall be remembered in heaven. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. The man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit. This is what we're doing. We're sowing to please the Spirit. By doing good, these acts from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Verse 9. Let us not become weary in what? Doing good. For at the proper time, there is a mighty harvest that's coming up. If we do not give up. Church, don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You know what God's saying? Do not become weary in doing good. Don't become weary in discipling people and restoring them in their foolishness and out of their foolishness. Don't become weary in finding ways to carry the burdens of your co-workers, your friends, your family, your CG members. Don't become sick and tired. Stop saying, I'm fatigued, I'm burned out, jaded. I can't be bothered anymore in doing good. I've had enough. My CG member, he needs a fly kick. God says, don't give up. Their harvest is coming. Your harvest is coming. There's a mighty harvest that is coming. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Everyone, he says. Especially, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Number three. The third point. Main point. But let me just say this. Investing in people is what? It's a matter of investing in the kingdom. P. 
people and God's heart. God's heart and people. Kingdom and people go hand in hand. And my final point. The kingdom advances through relationships when we renounce the orphan spirit and walk in sonship. And I'm going to get us to read this uh, in one loud voice. Romans 8, 15, all the way to verse 17. You guys ready? Ready, begin. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, but of whom we cry. Amen. And All right. So what's what's this orphan business and what's this sonship business? Okay, this is the core of this is core of my message. The core of a healthy relationship for you and I comes down to this point. It's a matter of whether we're walking in sonship or not. Really? What is sonship? It is an understanding that we are children of God and God is our Father and God provides all things. He provides all things. He protects us in all things. And therefore, our relationships overflow. You see, the orphan spirit right now is abound. And it needs to be distinguished. The orphan spirit is not a new thing, both historically, theologically, or biblically. It began ever since Adam and Eve, when they were alienated from God, the, God the Father, in the Garden of Eden. It was there when sin entered and the perfect union was marred between mankind and God that the orphan spirit permeated the earth, causing the worst damage of all human history. The orphan spirit is the center, partnering with sin, of all damage that we see before us. And to begin... When I mean orphan spirit, I'm referring to the sense of rejection, abandonment, loneliness, alienation, and isolation. And I'm going to share with you and summarize a a Christian magazine article that I found that comes from Charisma magazine. And uh, you can find it for yourself. I've left the link there. It's a little difficult, but it comes from also josephmatera.org. Joseph. M-A-T-T-E-R-A dot org. And I'm going to go through the outline in a moment. So anyways, the fall happens, and almost immediately, the fruit of the orphan spirit results in jealousy. And as we know the story, Cain murders his brother Abel over the fact that God the Father didn't receive his offering, but receives Abel. Now, this wasn't just a faith community issue. When murder began through Cain, it was the beginning of decay. A beginning of a decay in all families, in all nations, and history. People not only were alienated from God, the Father, but alienation permeated between biological earthly fathers to their children. That was the result of the fall. And this is what Joseph Matera says and believes, along with myself. Uh, that is, a lot of the, quote, emotional, physical, and spiritual ills of society is traced to human feelings alienated to God and their biological fathers. So you, even if you did studies and, and uh, you did research through sociologists, psychologists, and researchers of the related field, you'll find that 
all their research, they, they prove that there is a song, strong connection between the social disorder, including violence, substance abuse, school dropout, etc., to the absence of fathers and family in children's lives. It is said that often men have a hard time connecting to their spouses, their children, those in authority, and their supervisors, and they have a hard time accepting and loving themselves. And it's hard. Uh, it's not hard. And it's not hard to see the evidence that right now, millions, are, millions upon millions of incarcerated men and women are acting out of violence and rebellion because they themselves have felt abandoned by their fathers one way or another. And they've done studies. They've gone into jails and they've asked the question about their past, about specific habits that they got into. And the, and the natural flow they talked about was obviously getting involved with drugs, sex, gangs, and whatnot. But one of the biggest common denominator out of all the reasons they shared was they always felt abandoned by their father, earthly father. Unfortunately, the orphan spirit doesn't politely stay outside of our churches. As even pastors and leaders, even we are susceptible to it. We have found using people and destroying relationships in the pursuit of success and affirmation. We are using ministry as a means to find our identity. And this is not just affecting the leaders and the pastors who should be spiritual fathers. It's affecting all the members. Members are being disillusioned and hurt. And there is a vicious cycle of this orphan spirit that is going on right now. And chances are, there are people in this room, you've been affected by the orphan spirit. You've been hurt by spiritual fathers who should have been there. You've been hurt by biological fathers who should have been there. They should have been an extension of God the Father to you. There should have been a place of safety, an establishment of your gender, of your manhood, your beauty as a woman. But they weren't there. And so we carry this knowingly, unknowingly into our faith. Even though we've received the legal documentation, God says it's time to change your mindset. You are no longer an orphan, but a son. Let me give you some comparisons in contrast to the sonship spirit. There are 11 traits for us to examine. It's heavy. Yeah. It's a very heavy topic. Now, I found 11 traits, according to this article, that contrast the orphan spirit from the spirit of sonship and and. This is just the time for the Holy Spirit just to evaluate right now. Number one, some ways that we can illuminate uh, our lives according to sonship. The orphan spirit operates out of insecurity and jealousy. Whereas the spirit of sonship functions out of love and acceptance. Number two, the orphan spirit is jealous of of the success of his brothers. However, the mature son is committed to the success of his brothers. Have you, have you guys uh, ever thought about the prodigal son story? Um, how the older brother complained. You know, how could you celebrate this punk brother of mine? 
he basically took all his inheritance and he ran away and he, he squandered it. He acted like a fool. He made our family name be tarnished. Father, how could you do that? And he complained. So a lot of times we, we equate the, the prodigal son um, as the one who, who lives in the orphan spirit. But have, have you ever thought about maybe the older brother was also walking in the orphan spirit? Even though he was in the house, even though he was part of the church, he still was comparing himself to his younger brother. He could not celebrate the fact that his brother was once dead, but now has come. He could not celebrate the fact that this brother of mine, this brother of mine came back to life and now has an opportunity to be part of the family again. The orphan spirit is not just for people who have ran away from the church. The orphan spirit permeates even within this body, the church. Number three, the orphan spirit serves, to, serves God to earn the father's love. Whereas the mature son serves God out of the sense of divine acceptance and favor. He thinks he has to do to earn the love. But a mature son's, you know what? Everything that I do comes from the place of acceptance. I'm already loved. So he's at peace. There is no striving. There's no anxiety. Number four, the orphan spirit tries to medicate its deep internal alienation through physical stimulation. It's all behavioral. Whereas the mature son walks in joy and the presence of the Lord for comfort. Number five, the orphan spirit is driven by the need for success. Whereas the Spirit leads the mature son into his calling and mission. Can you see the focus? There's so much fear. I need to get my dream accomplished. I need to get my vision. If I don't get it, I, how am I going to succeed in life? Whereas the mature son, he waits. Father, what do you have for me? Yes, Lord. This is my page. It is blank. You write my life. There's a difference. The orphan spirit, number five, is driven. I'm sorry. Number six, the orphan spirit uses people as objects to fulfill goals. As I mentioned before. But mature sons serve people to bless the kingdom. Now, one person that I really get blessed by is a brother named Brady. And he's always looking to bless. And... There's no other person that, man, I just, when I see sonship, I see sonship in Brady. He's always wanting to pray for you. He's always wanting to encourage you and speak life. He's always at a place of overflow to give. And he always wants to be there because he overflows. He knows that the Father has provided for his needs and he's secure. So I bless you, Brady. Number seven, the orphan spirit repels children, which is kind of interesting. I don't know why they fear children, but the spirit of sonship attracts children. Now, I want you to meditate on that one. I wonder why. I'm still meditating on that too. Number eight, the orphan spirit has anger and fits of rage, 
The spirit of sonship rests in the father's ability to control and guide the future. They recognize that they cannot control even their own destinies. Number nine, the orphan spirit is always in competition with others. Whereas the spirit of sonship is always blessing others. Number 10, the orphan spirit lacks self-esteem. The spirit of sonship walks in love and acceptance of God the Father. Number 11, the orphan spirit receives its primary identity through material possessions, physical appearance and activities. However, the the spirit of sonship is grounded in sonship and the, the Father's affirmation. So I want to close with this. I don't know whether by sharing these uh, 11 areas of contrast highlights anything in your life, but the orphan spirit is something that I had to deal with uh, in my life. Uh, Even now, there's various parts of my closet that I'm still unraveling with God, Uh, but it, it comes back to my relationship with my family and my father. And, um, Actually, recently I had the opportunity to go back to Australia and to address this, but uh, I grew up in a family that both my father and mother were physically uh, sick, and um, my mother became so ill that I had to come back to Korea, where my family was in Australia. And so I grew under my grandparents. And uh, knowingly, unknowingly, I felt this abandonment, um, thinking, what's wrong with my family as a young, as a young child? Uh, but I was still happy, and uh, my mother did come out of hospital, and she was treated, and she's, she went through a process of being healed. Uh, but going back to Australia, I always questioned, like, why, why me? Why did I have to go through the things that I did? Why did my family have to always be sick, and my, my father and mother always not be there? And through time, I, I, I developed this sense of rejection. And um, it wasn't like my father was a bad father. He provided well. He, he, he was a man who, who uh, created great wealth for our family. I, I got everything that I needed. Um, but in that drivenness as well, I, I found myself trying to find approval from him. And time and time again, he would uh, always say, you can do better. Like it's, it almost sounds like a typical Asian <laughs> oriental family. And I know he, he meant it out of love. But I always had this sense, my father's always telling me, you can do better. That's not good enough. And so whenever I was doing house chores or even the smallest thing, with this already sense of rejection and abandonment, ever since I was a child, he'd always speak over me. Like, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. And he'd always correct me in everything that I'd done, uh, everything that I did. And so bit by bit, um, I went into high school and I went into college uh, and it was around that time that I accepted Jesus Christ in my life, and God healed me from a lot of that. But there was still this mentality that, that was still stored and still layers of hurt that I didn't deal with. And um, uh, that's when the concept of the orphan spirit came about. It came through a message that Pastor uh, J.M. preached a long time back at the joint prayer meeting, and he shared a summary of this. And he shared details of how the orphan spirit manifests. 
And uh, it made me realize, even though I was a Christian and I believed God the Father loved me, my mindset was still in that place of an, of, as an orphan. And it showed me that even Christians, no matter how much they may have come from a loving family, or they have come from a loving church, the orphan spirit the devil uses to plant seeds so that they can grapple them. And the reason why I want to share this message, and, and to be honest, it was a difficult message, as I mentioned from the beginning, to put together because it's a heavy spirit. Like even now, it's, I, I'm coming against this spirit when I'm preaching. Like you may think, oh, the word's not coming out clearly, but there's a spirit that I'm coming against. And the word of God wants to set us free right now from the orphan spirit. Okay, not by might, not by power, but the spirit of the Lord. And he wants to deal with it right now. And all week I've been praying uh, for this particular moment. And I just feel like there is things that the Father wants to do right now. Uh, he wants to trans- not only transform your mind over time, but he wants to encounter you with his love to enable you. So I'm going to uh, invite the priest to come up.